if we don't care, it's because we haven't connected the dots between what we do care about and how that is being affected by climate change. So it isn't about moving climate change up our priority list, like it's at 25 and then get it to 12, maybe shove it all the way up to number three. It's about recognizing the only reason we care about it is because it connects with what's already at the top of our list. So whether we care about our kids and their health, whether we care about the poor and the vulnerable in this world, which as Christians, I believe that we do, um, whether we care about a healthy economy, whether we care about the future of our country, whether we care about refugee crisis, whether we care about um, having the snow to ski in the winter, or whether we care about the place where we live and where we grew up and how it's changing already in terms of the animals and the insects and the birds and the plants that we see, um, whether we care about wildfire and the impact that that's having on our homes and our safety and our air quality, um, whether we care about the increased risk of flooding and how that's impacting our cities and our towns. It isn't about making climate change a bigger priority. It is simply about connecting the dots and showing how the person that you already are is already the perfect person to care. And in fact, caring about and acting about climate change is not antithetical to who you are. It is a genuine and true expression of who you are. This episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some aspects discussed may not be relevant in our current context, but we hope this can still spur discussion and provide content in this difficult time. As always, you can visit ptc.sh slash talk to someone to find support from any of our online mentors. Welcome to Undiscussed. My name is Eric. And I'm Caroline. And this is the show where we talk about things that Christians should talk about, but often don't. And uh, Caroline, we like to say this a lot, but we are not experts. Definitely on, not. As, <laughs> and especially on the topic of today. I have a degree in kinesiology, but we are talking about climate change today, and I do not have any expertise in that. But you know who does? <laughs> Who does, Eric? Our guest. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have Catherine Hayhoe with us today, and she is definitely a bona fide expert in climate change. Bonafide to the most utmost maximum. <laughs> so. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And if nobody knows the connection, just go watch it, and as soon as you see Bonafide, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Yes. Yes. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we, we've said you're bona fide, but maybe mm. how bona fide? Like, tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about... Levels of bona fide. Yeah, bonification. <laughs> All right. So I have an undergrad degree in uh, astrophysics from University of Toronto. Okay. And that may sound completely unrelated, but it turns out that most of what I learned in my physics and astronomy classes, I use in climate science today. Oh, wow. I have a master's and a PhD in atmospheric science. I am a professor at Texas Tech University, and in terms of scientific bona fides, what we count is do you publish scientific research? Do and I publish. do. <laughs> and not only do you publish, publish or perish. Do, do you publish in peer reviewed? Yes. Yeah, there you go. Highly ranked ones like science or nature. I have done that. And I also have served as a lead author on the U.S. National Climate Assessment, number two, three, and four. I have participated in National Academy of Sciences reports, and I do all the sciencey stuff. 
all the sciencey stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm wow, well, I feel real unqualified right now. <laughs> I, I do not feel like I'm smart enough to have this conversation. Definitely not. I've partake in a bit of zero waste, but even then I'm like I'm like scared to ask Catherine if that's <laughs> no! actually helpful at all. <laughs> but the beautiful part about it is our goal with this podcast is to have a normal conversation mm-hmm. demonstrating, you know, empathy about climate change and so on. And so we are very, very qualified to play the part of the people who are asking questions and learning because that's what we're going to be doing. Yes. 100%. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm delighted to be talking about it because it shouldn't just be a sciencey conversation. It should yeah. be a conversation among all of us. Wonderful. So before we get to the sciencey stuff, I would love to get to know you a little bit better. You're from, uh, you live in Texas now. Yep, from Toronto. But you're from Toronto. Mm-hmm. And Why did you leave? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> well, that is a story, actually. You want to go there? I would oh. love to. Okay, okay. So growing up in Toronto, um, we actually lived in Columbia for part of the time. My parents were missionaries mm-hmm. in Columbia as well. And you know us Canadians. I mean, we're pretty open to living around the world. You know, I've had cousins who've lived in you know pretty much every country you can imagine. Um, and so I went down to go to grad school in the States. I met my husband there. Um, he was applying for jobs on both sides of the border, but... Back then, there was a rule in place in Canada where if you had Canadian applicants before American applicants, you had to consider the Canadians first. And so he didn't get a job in Canada. He didn't even get an offer. And he got an endowed professor position at Notre Dame instead. So that's... That's, how, that sounds better than no job. Well, yes, <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Um, so that's how we ended up um, living in the States, first of all, um, was because that was where his job was. Um, but then interestingly, after we'd been there for a couple of years, which is uh, Notre Dame is in South Bend, Indiana. It is not in Boston like I thought when he first applied for the job. <laughs> I was like, ooh, Irish Catholic, got to be Boston. No, it wasn't. It was in Indiana, um, outside of Chicago. And we've been there for a number, a couple of years, and he was deciding um, you know, whether to go up for tenure there and to stay there. And so he took a year off to write a book which you have to write to get tenure in his field. He's in linguistics. And at the time, he was very active in terms of teaching in our local church. He was um, hosting a local radio show. He was just very interested in exegesis and Bible teaching. And so while he was on sabbatical, a church down in Lubbock, Texas, lost their pastor. And a friend of a friend was like, oh, well, I know a guy who's a really good Bible teacher who might be able to help you out while you're interviewing for new candidates. So they contacted my husband and they said, would you be willing to be our interim pastor for three months while we interview our candidates? And he said, sure, I can write my book on linguistics from anywhere. So we we went down to Lubbock, Texas for a couple of months. And I remember flying in and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is the middle of nowhere. Like there's just nothing but these circle, these crop circles as far as the (laughs) eye can see. And I thought, well, you know, we can live, you know, anybody can live anywhere for a couple of months. But at the end of the three months, they offered him the job. And he's like, well, I wasn't even a candidate for the job. And I have to go back to Notre Dame anyways, because you can't just take a sabbatical and then disappear. They make you sign things because that's been done before. (laughs) Um, So he said, well, here's what we'll do. We weren't totally sure that we wanted to stay at Notre Dame because I didn't have a position there myself. So he said, we'll put in our CVs at Texas Tech University, which happens to be in this town and happens to have programs in both of our areas, which is pretty unusual. And if it works out, then we'll come. 
So I figured that was a pretty safe bet. I mean, they didn't even have anything advertised for me. So what were the chances? None, I thought. So I was like, sure, here's my CV. (laughs) And then guess what happened? A giant Texas-shaped fleece showed up on the doorstep saying, go to Texas. And it was unmistakable. I did not want to go. I learned that we Canadians are willing to live just about anywhere except Except Texas. Texas. And it wasn't just me. My cousins, my family, my friends were like, what? Where are you going? Why? But I felt absolutely sure that despite my complete um, unwillingness to do this, that it was the right thing to do, that God was telling us move to Texas. Wow. So we did move to Texas um, because that Texas-shaped fleece was pretty clear. I mean, I could literally almost see it on the doorstep. And... um, it completely changed my life. And looking back now, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, I know that that was exactly what we were supposed to do and where we we're supposed to be. Wow. I just love the use of fleece because that's how you just know the Pentecostal roots are there. <laughs> Actually, no. No, really? they're not. <gasps> no. I grew, I grew up Plymouth Brethren. That is the opposite of Pentecostal. Yeah, that's, you can't get further. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I grew up that's Plymouth Brethren, surprising. too. Oh, you did, too? Yes. Oh. Which meeting did you go to? I went to uh, Bethel Park Bible Chapel in oh, Brantford. Open Brethren. Yes. Yes. Oh, were you closed? I, we were the middle version. We were uh, the gospel hall. My, my family was closed, but my parents left when I was little. Okay. So, so sorry, we were the Christian assembly. So there's the gospel hall, which are closed, the Christian assembly, which are in the middle, and then the Bible chapel, which are the open. Yeah. Yeah. You guys You're learning have- a lot right now. Yes. We're both. Yeah. We're- <laughs> yes. You guys are okay generally with like pianos in the sanctuary, but not for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My grandparents were gospel haulers. Yes. So I know. Wow. And now you're an atmospheric scientist. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you can be Plymouth Brethren and, yeah. and hey, no shade whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you had you had. Uh, I'm just admiring her journey. Yes, mm. that's 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 a wonderful way of saying it. Oh, of course. So I also want to know uh, about like what what do you do for fun down down in Texas now? <laughs> that is very important uh, because it isn't all you know all work. It has to be some fun too. Yeah. So I grew up around water. I love water. And going out of Texas, I said to my husband, I feel like the only way I could survive here is if we have water. So we looked for a lake. We found a lake that we could live near, got a paddleboard, spend a lot of time out in the lake. That's kind of my happy place. Oh, that sounds delightful. Mm-hmm. I paddleboard for the first time this uh, September, and uh, I, I, I see the appeal. Yes, it's great. It's very peaceful. Well, wonderful. So I feel like we got a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in to climate. And uh, I want to ask the partisan question first, uh, which is, why do you think climate is so partisan mm-hmm. in the States right now? If you turn on any news cycle, it's either Trump or climate, I feel like. Yeah. Well, um, you're asking two separate questions, I think. You're asking, um, why are people talking about it? And then also, why is it so partisan? Um, First of all, it is partisan. So in the States, climate change is now the number one most politically polarized issue. Wow. It beats out abortion, the death penalty, gun control, immigration, gay rights. It beats out everything in being the most politically polarized topic in the entire country. And I have to say, we are not far behind in Canada. If you look at polling data in Canada, whether people agree with 200 years of science that tells us that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are serious, 
if you superimpose our map of public opinion over the writings of who voted for which political party, there's almost a one-to-one correlation. Wow. I can, I can hear dials turning, even as you say those phrases, uh, with our listenership. Oh, oh, turning one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so then you might say, well, why is that? I mean, does the thermometer literally give you a different answer if you vote conservative or liberal or NDP? Of course not. Is there something fundamentally political about the simple physics of radiative transfer and nonlinear fluid dynamics? Of course not. I mean, we won't get any more into that, but those are the same physics that explain how our stoves heat food, how refrigerators work, and how airplanes fly. And there's not a lot of partisan ideology over whether stoves work or not. No. I mean, Mm. you can get into debate about which type of stove, but most people agree that stoves do heat food. So there's nothing inherently political about the science, but there is a lot that is inherently political about the solutions. Okay, well, why is that? Because the number one reason why climate is changing today is because we have built our society and our comfortable lives on fossil fuels. Digging up coal and then oil and gas and burning it is what powers our society and our economy. And 75% of the reason why climate is changing is because of fossil fuels. The other 25% is because of deforestation Agriculture, especially cows, produce a ton of heat-trapping gases. Um, Pigs and chickens a little bit too. Uh, And so we're talking about if we really are going to fix this thing, we have to change the fundamental basis of our society. And then when you look at a list of the richest corporations in the world and you just cast your eye down that list, you've got petroleum, 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 energy, energy, petroleum, petroleum, energy, automotive, which make things that burn petroleum, automotive, petroleum. So we are talking about a shift in the balance of power and wealth in this world. And we're also talking about a massive shift in the foundation of our society today. And that's scary. It is scary. And for many people, it's a threat. But if we say, yes, there's a problem, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us the bad person. And instinctively, none of us want to be the bad person. We want to be the good person. So instead, we make up sciencey or religiously sounding excuses as to why it isn't real or it's just a natural cycle or God's in control so it doesn't matter or the world's going to end anyway, so who cares? We make up these excuses to cover the fact that we don't think that we can fix it. And so that's why when we have these conversations, arguing about the science doesn't get us anywhere because people don't truly have a fundamental problem with the science. And arguing theology doesn't necessarily get us anywhere because the Bible says in black and white that humans have responsibility over every living thing on this earth. And in Revelation, it even says God will destroy those who destroy the earth. Wow. But when we talk about the solutions, that's where we can start to see change. Mm. Wow. And so I'm curious then, I think some people would fight back on, oh, why should I care when, you know, there'll be a new heaven, new earth. And yeah. so what is your kind of argument to those kind of, you know, naysayers who... Naysayers. Naysayers. To, to those people who hold that position. Sorry, yeah, you Come can on. tell my bias Come already. On. I Come fully on. admit it. those cards. Oh, I was vegetarian for six years. I don't eat red meat. I have a bias. Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll admit to it. But yeah. That's I'll, the most important thing is to admit to our biases. Oh, 100%. Because yes. we all have them. And if we try to pretend that we don't, that's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. for people who may not see the point of caring, why should we care about it? Mm -hmm. 
Well, if, if somebody doesn't care, and many of us don't, even people who will say, sure, I agree with the science, but why does it matter to me? If we don't care, it's because we haven't connected the dots between what we do care about and how that is being affected by climate change. So it isn't about moving climate change up our priority list, like it's at 25 and then make, get it to 12, maybe shove it all the way up to number three. It's about recognizing the only reason we care about it is because it connects with what's already at the top of our list. So whether we care about our kids and their health, whether we care about the poor and the vulnerable in this world, which as Christians, I believe that we do, um, whether we care about a healthy economy, whether we care about the future of our country, whether we care about refugee crisis, whether we care about um, having the snow to ski in the winter, or whether we care about the place where we live and where we grew up and how it's changing already in terms of the animals and the insects and the birds and the plants that we see, um, whether we care about wildfire and the impact that that's having on our homes and our safety and our air quality, um, whether we care about the increased risk of flooding and how that's impacting our cities and our towns. It isn't about making climate change a bigger priority. It is simply about connecting the dots and showing how the person that you already are is already the perfect person to care. And in fact, caring about and acting about climate change is not antithetical to who you are. It is a genuine and true expression of who you are. Mm. Wow. That, that, I, Sign I, me up. <laughs> that, that was a really good answer to that question. Seriously. I don't know what I was expecting, but uh, that, that was more than, than I was expecting for sure. And Catherine, one of the things that really impresses me about things that I've read and things that, that I've seen of yours is that you have connected the dots for me between uh, issues of the gospel and climate really well, uh, more so than many other people. And I've seen a talk uh, that you give that talks about how some of the least reached peoples in the world coincidingly are often from the places that are most hit by climate change. And, and I wonder if you can just comment on how climate change is actually a gospel issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So for those of us who are Christ followers, who are not just cultural Christians, but who believe that we've been given that new heart and we've been made spiritually alive and that we are called to love others as we have already been loved by God, not as some type of, you know, I can only be loved by God if I love other people, but we've had God's love poured out on us so abundantly that all we can do is share that love with other people. For those of us who believe that, then that is exactly what we need to connect the dots to, to the issue of climate change, because it is an issue of loving, of loving our neighbors, of loving each other. It's really interesting because in Genesis, in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, it talks specifically about our position relative to creation, to every living thing on this planet. And what it says is, it says that God made humans in his image for a reason. And the reason so is that we can, and the word is rada, we can rada every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And rada is the word that is, is translated uh, have dominion over or have responsibility for or have be stewards or in charge of. And we often interpret that as applying to plants and animals in the natural world. But the interesting thing is when you look at where the word rada is used other places in the Bible, it refers to having dominion over or ruling over and caring for people. Like in Psalm 72, it talks about how, how Christ will rule or rada from sea to sea in order to deliver the needy, care for the afflicted, have compassion on the poor. 
It's about caring for people. And today, a changing climate is disproportionately affecting the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. It is affecting food harvests, water supply, the security and safety of their homes. It's exacerbating refugee crises. It's um, inundating land. It's affecting the poorest and the most vulnerable faster and faster every year. And so caring about people and expressing God's love today means caring about a changing climate. It's who we already are. It's what God has already made us. Mm, wow. And so I'm curious then as, you know, we're a part of an organization that loves and desires to do missions and many other Christians probably listening to this are in the same kind of train of thought. What does that mean then as we pursue being on mission wherever we are and if we are in a place that is you know, a developing country, is mm -hmm. climate change then a part of our mission and how we go about? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I am a missionary kid myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so growing up in Colombia, it was, it was obvious how people who don't have the resources that we have in rich countries are already much more vulnerable to the naturally occurring weather and climate disasters that happen all the time. So when there's a flood here in Toronto, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage and insurance claims and things like that. If you have the same flood in Bangladesh, it wipes away, you know, a huge percentage of the rice harvest. It destroys people's homes. It contaminates water supply. It leads to cholera outbreaks. I mean, the differences in the impacts between the same type of events in a rich and a poor country are just astronomical already without climate change. So where does climate change come into it? It's, it's loading the weather dice against us, so to speak. So we always have a chance of rolling a double six, a killer heat wave, a devastating flood, a massive hurricane or typhoon. But as climate changes, it's taking one of those numbers and changing them into a six and another six and another six, or even some sevens. So we're seeing that heavy rainfall is increasing. Flooding is getting stronger. Heat waves are getting more devastating. Hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons are getting bigger and stronger and more powerful. And again, when these things happen, they affect all of us, but they affect the poorest the most, whether we live here in North America or whether we live on the other side of the world. Hmm. So what would that actually look like to be, say, I'm someone who has gone on missions and I'm still figuring out what missions looks like even hmm. now and my idea behind it, but say someone who is pursuing to be on missions in the field internationally in some regard, what would that actually look like to care and to advocate for climate change and to care about, you know, the vulnerable people they are reaching in these places that they're most affected? Yes. Well, first of all, we're we're on mission wherever we are. <laughs> You're 100% yeah. right. Yes. I know. I hate, I hate asking questions like that, but I'm like, some people's language around it is very particular. Well, I, yes. it, it provides Catherine the beautiful opportunity to say, to drop Things that like truth that. bomb. So, there you go. So that's why we ask questions. Like that. for, so for a long time, I mean, I struggled with this myself because I grew up as a missionary kid. MKs Unite. Exactly. Um, my husband's a pastor. And so I kind of had the sense that what I was doing was sort of second class. Like I'm, you know, I'm studying science, I'm studying God's creation, but I'm not directly, you know, at the front line, so to speak, was how I felt for a long time. But I grew to realize that, first of all, I felt very strongly called by God to do this. And second of all, I started to realize that wherever you are is your mission field. 
wherever you are, you are planted. So whether you're working in a corporation, whether you're working in a church or an organization, whether you are working in relief and development or a Christian organization, um, whether you're you know, teaching, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whatever you are, you are in the mission field. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was something that really has come to mean a lot to me, um, that there are no second-class citizens when it comes to God, that cleaning out the dishwasher can be an act of worship. Um, that's really, that's really, I think, a life-altering perspective. Honestly, you're not the first person to have said that today. Oh, to us. really? <laughs> Literally, the dishwasher, dishwasher analogy, Literal and everything. dishwasher analogy. Oh, my we heard someone talking goodness. about that today. I didn't so. even. I came up with that myself. So, I'd, <laughs> you know, someone's stealing your nose. Spirits no. moving. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but. When it comes to relief and development, when it comes to working in poor countries, a lot of organizations are recognizing that climate change is the hole in the bucket. So you are pouring everything you have into your time, your effort, your prayers, your money, everything you have, we're pouring into this bucket to try to address poverty or food shortages or health crises, for example. But there's a hole in the bucket, and the hole is getting bigger and bigger. And we don't have enough to pour into the bucket to fill it as the hole gets bigger and bigger, and the hole is climate change. So we have to be addressing climate change at the same time. Like what? Like in in some places, for example, in Africa, the rainy season, you could predict almost by the day. You knew when to plant. You knew when to harvest. You knew when the rains were coming. And today, that's not happening. The rains are coming weeks late, and when they come, it's a deluge instead of just a gentle rain. The crops are failing. Um, the, the water is running out. Um, salt water is infiltrating the aquifers as sea level rises. And so our relief and development work has to account for the fact that, hey, we have to do things differently. We have to grow our food differently. We have to purify our water differently. We have to recognize that the stresses are increasing and the urgency of helping people is growing even more strongly. And so some of the organizations that do that, for example, um, are the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Um, World Vision does that. Um, there's a great organization called Arasha that works here in Canada and around the world. Uh, Plant with Purpose, uh, Tear Fund, which is in Canada now too. Um, Climate Caretakers is one of my favorite organizations in the States. These are organizations that work in poor countries, work with developing uh, countries, but recognize that climate change is making the job even harder and even more urgent. We have to patch that hole in the bucket. So that begs two questions for me. So one question is, can we talk science for a second? Of course. Yes, I I (laughs) thought you might. Like, what is the science? Like, why is this happening? That's one Mm -hmm. question I have. And then the second part that we'll get back to is like, is recovery possible? Mm -hmm. So let's start with like, what is happening? Yes. So our planet has this amazing natural blanket of heat trapping gases, carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor. And what happens is the sun's energy shines down and goes pretty much right through this blanket like a window. And then the earth, absorbs the sun's energy, heats up, gives off heat energy, and just like a blanket traps your body heat on a cold night and keeps you warm, not an electric blanket, just a regular blanket, in the same way, our natural blanket of heat trapping gases traps the Earth's heat and keeps us over 30 degrees Celsius warmer than we would be otherwise. So without this natural blanket, which is part of God's design for life, our planet would be a frozen ball of ice, a lifeless one too. So if this is natural, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that by digging up and burning coal originally, 
and now gas and oil as well, we are releasing huge amounts of heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere faster than any time in the history of our planet. And what that's doing is it's wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. And just like you would if somebody snuck in at night and put an extra blanket on you that you didn't need, and you would heat up and start sweating, in the same way our planet is heating up because of this extra blanket we're wrapping around it. So, like, I've seen uh, movies like The Ice Age, obviously. Oh, yes. Yes, we scientific, all have. Scientific <laughs> movies. Yep. So there have been times where, like, climate has, like, goes up, goes down, mm -hmm. ice covers portions. You can tell that I, my kinesiology did a lot of climate work. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, interestingly, you can get into how climate change affects health. Like, that's a whole different conversation, yeah. but it's very interesting. Anyways. But, like, so what? What is happening? That's so. It's excel, so my my what's assumption. Different? What's different? Because <clears throat> climate has always been changing. Yes. Uh, if we believe in an old Earth, okay. if we believe in a young Earth, there is no climate change at dun, all dun, until dun. today. Yes. Oh, that's like a whole <laughs> yes. other podcast. It wow. Is. Catherine so, wants to open that can. Not necessarily. <laughs> what I would just say is this. It doesn't matter how old we think the Earth is because all we have to agree on to agree that humans are changing climate, we just have to agree the Earth is 300 years old and we all agree on that. Okay. Mm. But going into the distant past, if we're willing to go there, yes, the Earth absolutely has been warmer and colder before. In fact, you know, there were forests and swamps and crocodiles at the North Pole. So how do we know that it isn't just warming naturally? Well, this is exactly what we scientists look at. When we see that the planet is warming, and we don't only measure it with our thermometers and our satellites and our ocean buoys, we go around and we track what I call natural thermometers. We track melting glaciers, we track rising sea level, we track insects and birds and plants and animals moving poleward. We track over 30,000 different natural indicators of our temperature and they show irrevocably that the planet absolutely is warming. So when we see that happening, we don't automatically jump on the human bandwagon because that's never happened before. It would be like as if you were running a fever and it was a low grade fever, but it went up and down and up and down from day to day, but week to week it went up and up and up and up. And then you went to the doctor and you walk into the doctor's office and the doctor takes one look at you and yells, chikungunya. And you're like, <laughs> why would you think it was that? Wow. Yes. Uh, so, so you're not going to go to the exotic diseases before you look at you know, food poisoning or the flu or infection yeah. or, heaven forbid, cancer or something like that. So that's what we scientists do. So first of all, we say, could it be the sun? Because we know that the sun's energy goes up and down over time. And in the past, we've had colder periods with less energy from the sun and warmer periods with more. So we look at the sun's energy, and it turns out that over the last 50 years or so, it's been going down. So we can't, it can't be the sun that's causing us to warm. Then we know that there's natural cycles inside the climate system, like El Nino, for example. And we know that in certain parts of the world, it's warmer or cooler, depending on natural cycles. But all of these natural cycles are doing is they're just moving heat around the climate system. So El Nino, for example, moves heat from the ocean into the atmosphere. And La Nina moves it from the atmosphere back into the ocean. Some cycles move it from east to west or north to south, but they can't create it out of nothing. So when we look at the planet, we see the whole thing is warming. The ocean is warming, the atmosphere is warming, the cryosphere, that's the ice, is warming. The whole thing is warming. So it isn't just a natural cycle moving stuff around. The whole thing is getting warmer. 
So then people say, well, how do we know we're not just getting warmer after the last ice age, right? I mean, we know the last ice age ended when a squirrel went chasing an acorn (laughs) and (laughs) broke off a giant piece of ice. (laughs) There was a lot of science that went into that one. Imagine you had to identify the specific rodent. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And then you had to name him and make a movie about him. Just kidding. Um, Scrat, we all know. Yes, yes. (laughs) But but there is a cool story. So... um, a hundred years ago, they knew that there had been ice ages, but they didn't know why. And there was a really smart guy called Milutin who was finishing his PhD in concrete engineering, which sounds incredibly boring, but apparently he loved it. He was finishing his degree in concrete engineering at the university when World War I broke out and he was on the wrong side of the fence. He was a Serb. Mm. So he was about to be put into a, they didn't have concentration camps in World War I, but a, you know, a containment camp, so to speak, when his advisor, who was Hungarian, so he was on the right side of the fence, spoke up for him and said, um, I'll, I'll take custody of him under house arrest at the university. So they said, okay, he can stay at the university under house arrest, so to speak, on one condition, that he doesn't study anything to do with the war effort. And you know, World War I, trenches were made out of concrete if they were lucky. So he said, okay, I'm going to figure out why we have the ice ages instead. And he did. That's what he did. So the reason we know is because um, a, a Serb could, <laughs> couldn't study Wasn't concrete engineering. Study concrete. Wow. Yes. And the reason why is because there's natural cycles in the, um, the Earth's orbit around the sun. It becomes more elliptical and then more circular over time. And then the axis of rotation of the Earth precesses like a a top, like you spin a child's top, it goes around super fast and then it also goes around very slowly. That's what our earth does. It changes how sunlight falls on the earth and that causes the ice ages and the warm periods like we're in today. So where are we according to that? Da-da-da, we should be heading into the next ice age sometime in the next 1500 years. And we're not. We are moving faster and faster in the opposite direction. So interestingly, it turns out that the development of agriculture and large um, herds of cattle and other animals like that, also deforestation to plant fields, that was enough to offset the Ice Age. So just before the Industrial Revolution, we had perfectly balanced out the Ice Age cycles, and then the Industrial Revolution happened and we headed like a million miles an hour in the opposite direction. Okay, okay, so that talks about the science. Are we too late? Like, is is recovery possible would be the the follow-up. The answer to that is yes and no. And we have a global weirding episode specifically on that question because that's a big one. Yeah. Here's the way I think about it. It's as if we've been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for a number of decades. There is some lung damage that is irreversible. But we don't have lung cancer. We don't have emphysema. We're alive. So when's the best time to stop smoking? Now, <laughs> or as soon as possible, because we know, and this is actually what my research looks at, we know that there is a world of difference between a future where we continue to depend on fossil fuels versus a future where we wean ourselves off them as soon as possible. And the main difference is the survival, not of our planet, the planet will still be orbiting the sun, the main difference is the survival of our civilization. Interesting. So then, kind of to put it on a flip side, we're hearing all of this wonderful science, which is probably going completely over my head from a social science perspective. <laughs> but then Hopefully I'm curious. <laughs> oh, well, that's why I'm asking the okay. next few ones, because okay. then it kind of touches into my field of sociology. But mm-hmm. 
when it comes to the dialogue about climate change, what do you think um, the church is perhaps, the church lowercase church, um, is probably not doing so well in this in this regard entirely? Well, one thing that we're not doing is we aren't having the dialogue. So when they ask people, you know, do you think climate is changing? Do you think humans are responsible? Do you think that the impacts will affect plants and animals and future generations and people in poor countries? Most of us say in North America, say yes to those. But then when you ask people, do you think it will affect you personally? All of a sudden we say, no, we don't think it will. And then they ask, do you ever talk about this or hear somebody else talk about this? And pretty much everybody says no. We don't have the conversation. And I think part of that is because we don't know what to say. Part of it is we're afraid it's going to be too depressing. Part of it is we don't want to start an argument. We don't want to get into the politics of it. But we don't have these conversations. And I have to tell you something really interesting. And I think the social science has a lot to do with, with this. We've known the physical science for 200 years, but the social science is really explaining why we haven't mm -hmm. fixed this. So over American Thanksgiving this past year, um, the organization called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, which are over 20,000 wow. people around the US and increasingly in Canada too, under the age of 30, who support climate action and are evangelicals, they asked me to do a webinar on how to have a conversation with your family about climate change. Oh, wow. Yes. That's wonderful. And we, we had a great time. It's on YouTube, so you can watch it if you want. And I talked about how family and friends are the number one most trusted and effective messengers about climate change. That's what the social science has showed. I also talked about how social science has showed that having a conversation creates a true positive feedback loop. Because the more we talk about it, the more we know, the more concerned we are about it, the more we talk about it. Mm. So it's like this positive feedback loop. And then I talked about how in, in, a, in my TED talk, I talk about this a lot, how do we start the conversation with something we agree on rather than something we disagree on, something we have in common and share rather than something that we don't. So I covered all of this and then they put it out on social media and the feedback was, I mean, I get a lot of negative feedback on social media. I would say I get, you know, anywhere from two to three to a, a dozen every day. But the feedback on this was just like a tsunami of wow. how dare you disrupt the sanctity of our family's Thanksgiving with the idea that you millennial boomers bring up your latest cause when you know that that's not something we agree with. And the most fascinating thing was that most of the crap I get on social media um, about 95 to 98% of it is from men. It's a very gendered issue. But the outrage over the how dare you have a conversation over Thanksgiving was half woman, 50-50, and it was all Christian. You've, you reached the parody. Good job. Yes. <laughs> so, so then the social science has gone on to discover that who is it who isn't talking about climate change? It's a lot of us who we just don't want to... We don't want to kind of, you know, ripple the water, so to speak. We don't want to, you know, introduce something that we think might be divisive or controversial. We don't want to have these conversations. And that's what's happening in our churches. We don't want to have these conversations. Mm. I mm. mean, I attended a church where a third of the church left because of the color they painted the walls one time. Wow. I mean, and you think if that's that divisive, what would climate change do to the church? We are afraid of rocking the boat, and that's why we don't talk about it. Mm. Mm. So on the flip side then, 
what is the church actually doing well? You mentioned like that, what was it, Young Evangelicals for Climate Change? For Climate Action. Climate Mm -hmm. Action, wow, which is just fantastic in itself. But is there other things that you would say um, the church community, Christianity, is doing particularly well when it comes to talking about climate change? Yes, there are things that we are doing well. So people often say, well, why do you even need your faith when it comes to climate change? I mean, isn't the science enough? And it's true, so science can tell us that climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious, and our choices really do matter. The future is in our hands, literally. But what's the right thing to do? That's where our faith comes in. It's like science is the, you know, the compass. It can tell us here's north, here's south, here's east and west. But where do we want to go with that? That's where our faith and our values come in. And our values as Christians are to care for the least of these, to care for the poorest and the neediest of the world, to take our responsibility to care for every living thing on this planet as a trust given to us by God. And so I just heard an amazing thing the other day. I heard an interview that Christiana Figueres did. She was the head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is a huge mouthful, but it's basically the organization and she is the person who made the Paris Agreement possible. Wow. So that is the first international treaty for every country in the world Mm -hmm. to reduce their carbon emissions. And she just this year, Christiana did an interview where she said that the faith community globally, worldwide, was instrumental in making this agreement happen. So uh, Bishop Ephraim Tendero, for example, who is the head, the Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, he was one of the official delegates to the Paris Agreement from his country, the Philippines. Oh, that warms my heart. Yes. And um, Climate Caretakers, another Christian organization, led a Christian delegation to the recent climate conference in Madrid. There they connected with Latin American and Hispanic Christians from around the world. Yes. Um, The Episcopal Church in the U.S. sends Bishop Mark from San Francisco, from California. He's their representative at the climate conferences. The faith community has played a tremendous role in bringing values and bringing the reason why we're doing this into the conversation. Carolyn and I, for those who are listening and not watching, we're both just nodding at each other. <laughs> we're just appreciating. Well, it's just so encouraging. Yeah, it is encouraging. That's why we, we, when we talk about what the church could be doing better, we do that first because we want to <laughs> we move in a positive slope, right? What are some practical steps? So mm-hmm. you talk about uh, just simply dialogue and having a conversation is a positive step, but what are some positive steps that we can do uh, as Christians or, or even just people on planet Earth, you know, mm-hmm. who are being affected by climate. Absolutely. So first of all, as I talk about in my TED Talk, the, the single most important thing any of us can do is to use our voice to advocate for change, to have those conversations, to talk to each other, to talk to our school, to talk to our church, to talk to our business or our family or our home, to talk to um, people in our city and our leaders to advocate for change because we need system-wide change. If everyone in the world, uh, well, so individually, depending on our lifestyle, for some of us, one of the most important things we can do to cut our personal carbon footprint is to become vegetarian. If we eat a lot of meat, especially if we eat a ton of beef, then becoming vegetarian is one of the most important things we can do. And vegan is a step better because it's even less animal products. But even if everybody in the world became a vegan, and that is not practical for a lot of people in poor countries, 
They need whatever protein they can get from whatever source. Even if everybody became vegan in the whole world, that would only take care of about 12 to 14% of the problem. So that's why we need system-wide change so that people have choices in how they get their energy, in how they travel, in how they eat, in how they live, um, in how we, we grow our food. And so that's why our voices are key to making a difference. But as we advocate for that change within our everything from our families to our organizations to our country, we would advocate for specific actions. So for example, we can step on the carbon scales and we can measure where our carbon footprint comes from and we can decide as an individual, as a couple or as a family, that here are the steps that we are going to take to practice what we preach, to live that out in our lives. And you don't have to do it, you know, all, all in one day. What I do is every year I decide on one or two new things to do every year and I practice them till they become a habit. And then they're easy and effortless. And then the next year I add a few more to the list. With our organizations, um, one of the most effective things that people who own buildings can do is to uh, do an energy audit. How are we wasting our energy? How could we save our energy? How could we be more efficient? How could we model this to our people in our congregation? We could maybe say, hey, it's hard to know what light bulbs to pick. Here are the light bulbs. We've decided to do away with plastic and disposables, so that's why we got the mugs out here. Food waste is a huge source of heat trapping gas emissions, so we are not going to be wasting any more food. We're going to be very careful with our food, and we're going to support organizations like Second Harvest, where you get like the ugly fruit and vegetables they can't sell in grocery stores that they would otherwise throw out. Instead, we're going to eat that. Um, we can advocate for larger scale change too at the level of our city in terms of our development and our transportation, providing options to people, especially people who are poorer and more vulnerable, because it really does affect us all. And um, last year, I was asked to speak at a benefit for a woman and children's homeless shelter in Halifax. And I spent the day with the director driving around to their different facilities, and she was explaining to me how when there's heavy rainfall events, the public transportation gets shut off and they can't get to their jobs or to their medical appointments. When there's a heat wave, it carries a tremendous toll on people who are living outside. When there's a storm, it cuts off their, their um, connection to the rest of the community. And she was showing me through actions a dozen ways that climate change is immediately affecting people in the places where they live. So I had already prepared a talk talking about how climate change disproportionately affects women and children of all the populations in the world. But with everything she gave me, I thought, oh my gosh, there's direct connections now to how climate change affects homeless women and children in Halifax. So we arrive at the banquet and their big sponsor was Canadian Tire. And so they came over to shake my hand. But you could totally tell they were just like, why the heck did they invite a climate scientist? Like, this has nothing to do with anything that we do. Oh my gosh, Sherry, you really dropped the ball here. I could just see it written, on, but of course being Canadian, very polite, but I could see it in their eyes. And so I gave this talk with a talk specifically about homeless people in Halifax and how they're being affected by climate change and what we could do about it. And afterwards, the man from Canadian Tire was the first person up on the stage and he grabbed my hand. He's like, I gotta be honest, I didn't know what they were thinking inviting you. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he said, but that was the best talk that I've ever heard wow. on what we do. And I was like, yes, we connected the dots. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so anyway, homeless shelter, church, business, school, organization, wherever we are, wherever we are planted, wherever our mission is, we can make a difference and it begins by using our voice. Yeah, and I, and I like how you brought it back to connecting the dots as well. Because mm -hmm. uh, 
that is so key to connect the dots to what what is important to you and how that affects affects you as well um this is great yeah it is great but i think i think it's time for the final word it is yeah. on our podcast we like to give our guests the final word a final question or advice they want to give or just a lasting statement to our listeners um lasting statement no pressure, no <laughs> pressure. <laughs> all right whatever you want to give but honestly like so much of what you said i i even i'm just going to listen back to this and it's so encouraging as someone who's i'm figuring out zero waste i'm figuring like i've been a vegetarian for a while and so to hear that you know that does play some part it's not all pointless and that people are you know making big systematic changes is really mm-hmm. encouraging but absolutely feel free to give your whatever it is <laughs> i won't say lasting statement because eric has said that's unacceptable oh, now. no no it just it just it, it puts pressure i don't want I, no well, pressure i have had pressure so for example um this year i was named the united nations champion of the earth whoa oh, wow and you didn't put that in your opening that's that should have been one of your bona fide yeah. oh welcome right, right. Catherine hayhoe champion of the earth <laughs> <laughs> And so, so I arrive at the very fancy dinner in New York this September, and I they, they give it in a couple of different categories. So I had the one in science and innovation, and somebody else had the one in, um, I forget what it was, something to do with you know outreach and engagement. And so I ran into her, and she said, oh my gosh, they were editing my speech for me because they didn't like what I was going to say. I was like, speech? What speech? <laughs> and so I quickly got the woman who was telling me, you know, where to sit. I was like, is there supposed to be a speech? And she's like, oh, yeah, just a few minutes. I'm like, oh. So I've got between the appetizer and the main course to come up with a speech. Great. <laughs> so, so no pressure at all. Here's what I'm going to say. Often, and this is what I thought myself, we think of climate change as a niche issue. We think of it as an issue that environmentalists care about scientists care about. But if I'm not an environmentalist or a scientist, if I'm not a tree hugger, if I'm not David Suzuki, then I feel like, oh, it's not really something I care about. But the reality is this, the only reason why we care about climate change is because it affects everything that we already care about today. It affects our health, it affects our food, it affects our water, it affects our natural resources, it affects our outdoor activities. It affects our economy, it affects our political stability, it affects refugee crises. Climate change affects everything that matters to us today in this world. And so to care about climate change, all we have to be is a human living on planet Earth. And we are all that. And if we're a Christian, how much more so? If we believe that we are not only one living thing of billions living here on planet Earth, but we believe that God has given us a responsibility to care for every living thing on this planet, every cell, every plant, every animal, every other human, then how much more is caring about climate change a true and genuine expression of who we already are? If we truly believe what the Bible says, we wouldn't be dragging our feet at the back of the line. We would be at the front of the line demanding climate action. Wow. That is a final word. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Pressure was applied and it came through. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, champion of the earth, Catherine Hayhoe. (laughs) You are very welcome. (laughs) For being on our podcast. We've enjoyed having this conversation with you and talking about climate change. It's been a delight and... For our listeners, we'll see you on the next episode of Undiscussed.